Welcome to the Doctor Patient Forum, a no holds barred patient advocacy podcast discussing why millions of pain patients continue to suffer, but most importantly, who caused the suffering. Join us weekly as we discuss how you can help end the untreated pain crisis. Hey there, folks. Thanks for taking time out of your day. This is a really interesting podcast that Bev and I have put together for you today. Bev, you know how a few weeks ago we put out some information on what we think patients should share with their doctors on the first visit? Yes, definitely. And I think it's been pretty popular. We've gotten some good feedback on it. Yeah, that was I think that was a great episode. But this one that we recorded with a pain specialist just opened my eyes. I'm sure it opened your eyes as well. What did you take away from this podcast? I think it's very interesting to hear it from a provider's point of view, because we can say all we want what we think doctors feel, but it's always really important to hear what they think. I think one of the important things that I took away is how she said she's still as a mother she has three boys as a mother she's still concerned about them having access to opioids in the medicine cabinet and that's something I feel that we really don't hear enough of we hear our government pushing not prescribing to prevent access but it's so important to always remind everybody to lock up their medication always lock up your medication yeah it's it's just it's just smart right because I know when my kids have well not my youngest one if she has people that are in my house I don't even want antibiotics left out because you just don't know what can happen so we hope that you enjoyed this podcast and don't forget follow us on this app on anchor spotify and be sure to leave a note did you like it what didn't you like what would you like to see Bev and I discuss in the future give us a shout out on social media help us get the Doctor Patient Forum podcast out there. Welcome to this episode of the Doctor Patient Forum. I'm Claudia Mirandi and my co-host Beverly Schechtman, Vice President of the Doctor Patient Forum. Don't forget, folks, if you like what you listen to today, click like, leave a note for us, and don't forget to follow us on both Apple, Spotify app. Uh, in one of our episodes, we covered how to prepare for your first visit with a new pain doctor. And that's because of Beverly's stellar research. And we wanted to give you folks some insight, what to take with you, what to say, what we think, what to say, what not to say. But today we are thrilled to have a pain specialist with us who's going to give us her point of view, what she looks for when she's interviewing a patient. She is a pain specialist, board certified nurse practitioner. Welcome to the show, Kelly. Hi, thank you so much. So Kelly, you and I, we've had uh, many conversations about treating pain. And when I first connected with you, you're a doctor of courage because it's not easy treating pain in this climate. What made you decide to start treating pain? Basically, I just felt that in my career that there were a lot of patients who had such mixed pain issues. And it was pretty much, I felt underserved or undertreated. I also worked with a pediatric population in the beginning of my time in pain management. And I started my career in the emergency room, you know, so this was basically more about acute pain. But as time went on, I, I just realized that the chronic pain community was very underserved. And many of the patients I took care of 
really weren't going to get any better. They were typically going to get worse. I just felt that it there was a huge need. I think there still continues to be a huge need. I think that both healthcare providers and the public are just not aware of how chronic pain affects the whole person. I think that's probably what drove me to get into it more is that I just felt patients needed more of an advocate. Yeah. And underserved uh, is, <laughs> right. I mean, uh, underserved is an understatement at this point. We, we, you know, we received so many phone calls from people and, and I feel like these poor people, they've been left with street drugs or suicide. It, do you think the pendulum has swung too far the other way? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I would say that I didn't practice. I wasn't in pain management during the beginning phases of all the flood. The market was flooded with opioids and oxycodone and all of those products. But I can understand why the medical community became very much afraid to prescribe because the aftermath, nobody, the the follow-up wasn't there. And I think that prescribing that went on and on and on um, was led more by financial interest than it was patient safety. Mm-hmm. But yes, I do think it swung too far. And you're a mom to three young boys, and mm-hmm. and, we're, and I'm a mom. Bev's a mom, and I know I'm I'm so afraid that if my girls develop my disease because I inherited from my dad, that they're going to suffer. And and I would imagine as a mom, that's a real fear for you as well. It is. I think on my end like any illness, like any childhood illnesses, you, you never want your kid to be sick, um, injured, or have any chronic illness throughout their life. I think that having, um, just being an advocate, I mean, even with minor sports injuries or minor situations, I'm able to advocate for them. So I do, I worry about things like that, but I actually probably worry more about, them having any kind of access as they become, you know, as teenagers having access to the opioids, because unfortunately, many teenagers do get access to parents' opioids. And that's from a parent standpoint, that probably scares me more. Yeah. And it's really important that if people have pain medication in their home to lock things up, Uh, you know, I know after my girls had their wisdom teeth removed, they both received a script for pain medication. I think six pills. I think we can agree that six pills does not an addict make, right? Right. And I, I, I mean, I think it's probably really dangerous because we're seeing these, these, the young adults die from fentanyl poisoning. And what we're hearing, it's because they've been cut off of their anxiety medication or they can't get Vyvanse pills and they're desperate. They need their attention deficit and they're going to Snapchat and they're purchasing medication that they think is medication, but it's laced with fentanyl and parents are finding them dead in in their bedrooms. And and I just think that's probably just as scary a situation under treatment of pain can be more dangerous, I think, than over treatment. I know you you had a loved one who was right. And I spoke with him who's in the same situation. And I think this has hit home. He's exhausted all of the alternatives to opioids and when I spoke with him, he would really benefit from a small dose of opiates just so he can make, just so his life is livable. When I spoke with him, he said, I finally found my dream community and here I am suffering. So I feel like everybody has felt the suffering. So Kelly, what we want to talk with you about today mm-hmm. is what, what you look for when you interview a new patient. And I've referred you many patients. Mm-hmm. So 
before the patient comes into the office for you to initially evaluate, what do you want from that patient? What do you want the patient to bring with them to the first visit? The first thing I would want is patience, meaning the information that I need is generally not obvious in the referral that I got. So unfortunately, they fill out this application and I get these notes. And yes, patients can bring a whole stack of papers with them. But for me, what is most beneficial is really understanding that in order to come up with the best plan, I really need to have a more holistic approach to it. And that's why I need to know what other medications are you on? What other disorders do you have? Do you have diabetes? Do you have cardiomyopathy? I think that's one of the things I think patients initially struggle. They think I'm just here for my pain management. And um, it does make a difference. It is very helpful for them to be honest with me and say, this is the medications I've tried or I haven't tried them. Also understanding that just because they tried a medication doesn't mean that it won't work for them. I've often seen the dosing is substandard or overdosed. When patients come in and they say, oh, well, morphine made me sick. Well, if they started you at a very high dose, yes, that's going to be make you sick. Or if you have renal disease, that's not going to process well. So I generally want patients to understand my approach to it, which may not be like others, but my approach is mostly, I see you filled the application, you, you listed all the potential injections and physical therapy and acupuncture and chiropractor and all that. But now let's just focus on, yes, the description of your pain, where your pain is, but as far as medication management, if that's the main source of treatment for you, which most patients, that's why they come to me, is medication management. Let's just understand that it's not just writing a prescription. It's also understanding potential side effects and safety measures. So I would say that having the patient's really bring that, you know, even if it's their whole medicine cabinet, I mean, not the cabinet itself, but all of those bottles. Can't tell you how many times I've seen patients fail to mention that they're on um, meloxicam, for example, which is a non-steroidal. And yet they're also on omeprazole and, you know, and they have GERD and reflux disease. Just understanding those things that would help in the selection. I also find it very helpful if patients are able to tell me examples of what their goals are. So if the example is, I just want to be able to get up in the morning and do my laundry or do do regular things, or perhaps it's an example of I'm taking a trip and I'm going to Alaska and I need to be able to walk and I need to be able to do this. Or it could just be my time is limited on this earth and I'm at the, you know, I'm in my 80s and I just want to be able to do anything. You know, it could be as simple as that. So that I find helpful. I would also say psychiatric history is a big part of an initial visit. Again, I would just ask patients to understand that, again, this is part of the process of understanding which medications may work for you, may cause complications. So I would say those are probably the biggest things for me when I first meet a patient. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine the patient should have a primary care physician as well. Yeah. So all patients do need a primary care provider. They would require, and so in the medication um, agreement that I asked patients to sign with me, it does say that one of their responsibilities to remain in the program is to continue, continue annual visits with a primary care 
provider and I actually asked the name of that provider in there. If I had to do lab work and x-rays or any kind of diagnostics on every single patient I saw, I, I wouldn't get through the day. So I do rely on some basic blood work, annual labs checking through the primary care provider. But I also, when a patient is, you know, having an issue, it could just be a cold symptom or it could be they think they sprained their ankle and they go in to see their primary care. It is helpful for me to understand, did they decide to start them on a different medication or did they decide to send them to PT and then they see me and I want to send them to PT, but you can't be on two PT at the same time. So we do try to send records and, and share information. Unfortunately, primary care is extremely busy and every patient, it's just kind of a go, go, go type of environment. And I, I just want to ensure that patients do have that option to see a primary care provider and have them understand the medications they're on and supportive. But yes, I do definitely want patients to continue with preventative health and understand that just like anything, um, most medications that I prescribe are high risk and that's why monitoring is needed. Yeah, high risk. And you've been gracious enough. You've taken some patients that have had a history of suborder years ago. What Claudia was saying that got cut off was Kelly has taken patients who have a history of substance use disorder, even from years ago. And a lot of doctors just shut the door on these poor people, but you were gracious enough. You've taken patients in and they are high risk patients. And there is a need for you to see these people on a regular basis, maybe two weeks, maybe four weeks. And, and we want patients to understand that this is a crucial time. And you're brave enough to even write a script for a controlled substance. So, so as a nurse practitioner, you don't answer to the state medical board. You answer to the nursing board. Correct. And have they been? supportive throughout this whole war on prescribers? Have they said much about the issue? Not that I'm aware of. I think most of the um, situations I've had with the board have all been positive ones. I can't say that I've had anything concerned, but I do see the reports. I closely follow, for example, they put out to the providers sampling of street drugs. So somebody may think they're buying methamphetamine and it's laced with fentanyl. So they, they do advertise those. And I actually, they encourage you to post them. And I do, I put them up in the clinic and say, these are street drugs that you think you're buying. I would say that if I had to sway either way, I would say they are supportive. I think they're, they're not it's not their primary concern. There's so many other nursing issues in the state that I think they probably defer most of it to the medical board. Yeah, I feel like nurse practitioners have taken control of the issue because we've had so many nurse practitioners email us and say, I'm willing to take, I'm in Oregon, I'm in Washington state, I'm, I can take on a few patients. And I don't really get that a whole lot from the doctors. I've got some doctors, some hospice doctors or palliative care doctors that have also taken on patients, but people are afraid. And I don't think much is going to change until we can remove fear from the clinic. But I, I think it's going to take some time. And what are your thoughts, Kelly, on urine drug testing and pill counts and how frequently are they conducted? My first thought is they are an essential part if you're part of a pain management program. And there's no way for me to tell. You know, it could be a retired police officer. It could be a school teacher. It could be a nanny. It could be an elderly woman. I have had elderly patients who are in their late 70s and they grew up in the time that, that that's what 
you know, street drugs is what they did. Now, and I'm not talking about marijuana. I'm talking about um, predominantly cocaine or ecstasy and, and other street drugs. So one of the things is there's no way for me to tell. So I look at it as, and, and I do say this to patients, you know, even the 80-year-old patient comes and meet me. I say, unfortunately, I have to treat everybody the same because there's no way for me to tell. And if the patient that although on the outside looks totally fine, they, they, they have very low risk factors. If they, for any reason, are using other substances, that's the conversation that I need to have with them and understand that I can't continue to prescribe if they're continuously doing this. And the reason is, is that I don't want to be called by a medical examiner the next day and try to figure out why the patient's dead. I know that patients think that's extreme, but I've been in that situation before. And it's a terrible feeling to think that the prescription you wrote may have contributed to someone's death, accidental overdose, but it's still contributed. I also think the urine toxicology is one tool. I also try my best to never make clinical decisions based on one urine toxicology. However, often cocaine is the most particular one that I find. And I have the conversation with the patient and I show them there's not only on the urine dip, but it's a comp confirmation urine. It shows metabolites. It shows that there's no doubt there's cocaine in it. 99%, I can't actually, I don't think any percentage of the time the patient hasn't admitted it to me. And then at that point, how do, how do I, now I know, and you know, you don't want to say, oh, the patient does cocaine. You don't want to put that, you know, in your brain, but I have to understand that basically I just say to the patient that, and it, and it depends on the situation, but I, I try to explain to the patient that if something were to happen to you, I knowingly continue to prescribe when you have illegal drugs in your system. It is in your medical record. I cannot erase it. It's here. So you basically, unfortunately, those patients are now put on a more closer monitoring. Sometimes they are discharged from the practice, depending on the situation. You know, the conversation is had. Um, I, I do utilize, I really just try to use it as an education tool and try to be supportive as I can. I also think that urine toxicologies can benefit the patients who may be taking other medications by other prescribers who perhaps are fearful of prescribing, for example, the Adderalls or the Benzos, and that it can be helpful because if they call me or they reach out and the patient gives consent, of course, we can say, oh, yeah, they've always had the benzo in their urine. That's never been an issue. Or they've they've come to the pill count. We asked them to come. They came to the pill count randomly. And why is a random pill count need, need to be part of the program? Is again, that one in 10 patient that perhaps is using illegal substances or perhaps they're selling them. There's no easy way to figure this out. But one of the ways that really helps is the random toxicology and a random pill count. That is a random selection that, you know, maybe you've been coming to the clinic for years, but if you, mo I mean, most patients, if they're going to sell it, they're pretty savvy. I, I understand there's a lot of technology out there. You can Google things. There's ways to trick it. You can purchase urine online, all this stuff. And these are things that really belong in addiction medicine. But unfortunately, there's patients that do abuse the system and there's really no easy way for me to actually figure it out. So the randoms is part of the program. I really think that it's very important. And I know that 
if I were a patient, I would feel it's humiliating. I would feel it's awful that I have to leave work and go pee in a cup. But again, I do it because I want to make sure that the patients are aware they are, they could be randomly selected and they're aware that I, I need to make, make sure that they're going to be safe in taking these medications and that it's also about the community. I mean, if they are selling these pills and, you know, they're coming into their clinic and they're taking their pills a few days before, you know, and they call them for random, the pill counts off or there's no metabolites in the urine. I mean, that person they could be selling it to them could be, you know, a recovering addict. And th- that's just, it's not something I want to contribute to yeah. in my practice, you know, yeah. or, or they could be selling it to my child. That's right. right. That's yeah. right. Or my child in college or my child in high school. And I know, uh, you know, people don't like when I discuss this, but listen, folks, it's happening. I think a lot, I think pain patients need to understand the tools that you've implemented in your clinic. It's for not only the patient safety, but it's for the prescriber safety, because if I was writing a script for an opioid, I wouldn't want to go to prison for anybody. And that's what's happening. So I think it's, it's about time that both patient and prescriber need to be on the same page because like anything, there's good and there's bad. And that applies to doctors, that applies to patients, that applies to pharmacists. To <laughs> yes. Yep. It, now, Kelly, I know there are so many issues with the pharmacy filling the medication. Next week, we have a great pharmacist on, you know, pharmacists are having the same issues. They can't get the medications. Has that been a problem for you? Have your patients been able to get their medications filled? Yes. But one of the ways I've combated that, which again, is something that usually is not favored by patients is I do what's called serial scripts. And the terminology is basically renewing the medication, sending half a partial. So in other words, if somebody takes 60, uh, so for example, say they take 56 pills, so twice a day dosing. So in order to reduce the risk that they're not going to get their meds, when I see the patient in the clinic, I send the prescription, but then, or maybe I'll send three weeks and three weeks. So in other words, either way, I try to break it up. I, I seldom try to do the one week just because I could be there all day sending, oh, you know, I'd be sending a lot of scripts. So I've done that. I've also educated the patients that I cannot control the pharmacy and that if this is is an issue of a supply, especially towards the end of the year when, you know, maybe the supply chain is slowed down or the DEA is restricted certain manufacturers, certain medications, that the patients have to be accountable. They know I usually will tell a patient, they they typically can go on the portal, but they can easily know, this is the day I'm going to send your medication. So it's your responsibility to call the pharmacy and make sure they're going to fill it. Because again, that's part of being in the pain program. I I think that is an issue. I think also patients um, may not recognize the seriousness I, I take as a prescriber when they get meds from another prescriber. And I really rely heavily on the pharmacist to not fill the other script because they're in a pain agreement. So that's something that I I would hope that you do talk to the pharmacist about and see what their insights are. Because when you look at that, um, the state prescription monitoring, which is very helpful to me, when someone else prescribes, it doesn't tell me a diagnosis. It doesn't tell me what happened. It doesn't tell me why. But it does tell me that a pharmacist looked at that and thought it was okay for the patient to be on two different opioids or get it from two different people. And so did the person prescribing it. 
without without really understanding. So it technically falls back on the patient. Again, part of the medication agreement. Mm-hmm. Now, what if your patient needs to have a surgery? Let's say one of your patients needs a spinal fusion. Who's in charge of treating the patient's pain after the surgery? So the way that I do it is I give the patient the option. Most often they select us, um, the pain clinic. What I would say, if if they're going to have surgery, especially they're going to be admitted, once they go into the outpatient world, they can choose to have the surgeon manage their pain for three months. However, during that time, that surgeon would need to agree to also prescribe the chronic pain meds that are controlled. I'm, you know, I'm not talking about the um, lidocaine patches or things like that. I'm talking about controlled medications. Or what we would do is as long as the surgeon signed a form, I, I just basically have a form because it was a very challenging to get surgeons and pharmacists and everybody on board. So basically, I would ask the surgeon to just say, yep, I agree to have pain management. The ideal situation which is generally not feasible given that everybody's so busy and overworked these days, would be to have a conversation. In most high-risk patients, I do try to have a conversation with the surgeon. I do discuss the fact that perhaps this patient needs a block. They need to go home with a block. Or perhaps this patient needs IV meds prior to departure. Or, you know, all these considerations if they're going to be inpatient versus same-day surgery. So I do try to have that. But I do tell the patients if they want to have the surgeon prescribe, they just need to understand we would pause our medication agreement while they're going through PT or whatnot. And one of the biggest reasons I do that is I find that many of the surgeons will simply do a very cookie cutter standard prescription and not even look at the patient's history as far as pain management or what they're currently taking. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've had patients taking um, long-acting morphine and they're on reasonable dosing, let's say 90 morphine mill equivalents a day. They've been on this dose and the surgeon sends them 25 milligram tabs of oxycodone. That patient is so opioid tolerant that that likely isn't going to do a whole lot. Basically, now the patient's stuck and the, the, the likelihood of them taking more of the morphine goes way up. And now that puts me in a predicament because how do I, now I got to say, oh, now you can early refill, you know, things like that. So that's typically how I handle it. I know that in the past, the surgeon was just allowed to give them, you know, pretty much whatever. And we just said, okay, and that was it. But unfortunately, I think that's where the danger comes in, where patients can really just get into trouble with it, you know, meaning taking mixed opioids and also the state PMP now, it looks like the patient that stays on the record. And now if someone were to look at that, it's like, why are there, you know, maybe the surgeon prescribed something and then the PA at the surgeon's office prescribed and here I am prescribing. So why did the patient have all these prescribers in a one month period? So that's another thing I try to educate patients that this stays on your record. So when you choose to pick up that prescription, even though you know that we had the discussion that you shouldn't be accepting narcotics from someone else. It's a permanent record in your chart. Now, some patients of yours will also continue to go to neurosurgeons and orthosurgeons, and they're getting, you know, they're these poor people, they're being talked into spinal cord stimulators and endless rounds of injections and more surgeries. And you and I, we've had the discussion about say no to constant surgeries. I feel like these surgeons are really profiting off of this community. So Kelly, I'd like to get your thoughts on 
alternatives to opioids like spinal cord stimulators. Patients are being forced to get injections in order to receive pain medication. So let's start with the spinal cord stimulator. Yeah, so uh, spinal cord stimulation, I think it can be very effective for certain types of pain. I think that I don't know why it's second or third line treatment lately. Um, I think that when insurance companies look at paying for this, I, I it just baffles me that some of the charts I read, they say all conservative measures have been tried, yet no one's given the patient an opioid. So that's one thing I would say is that I think it is good for some patients. And I think a trial is typically, you know, the best way to go and see. But I don't think that it should be necessarily who are on opioids, consider it unless they basically having side effects or there's other reasons. But generally speaking, I feel it should be one or the other. Now, I do have patients who already have a stimulator implanted, didn't work or not working very well or doesn't reach the other part of their pain. So then yes, they stay on oral opioids. But I think that the patient that has never been on opioids and is being offered this are very low dose opioids or not managed by pain, managed by the primary care. And then all of a sudden this pain specialist wants to just, you know, inject and and do all these other invasive procedures, I don't support that. Again, I do think it, it totally depends on the patient. There are certain conditions, dental neuralgia, for example, there are simulators that that is a condition a female would have with the lower abdomen, pelvis pain. So those can be very successful, but typically patients who have these conditions require high dose opioids. And I think it should be considered if, if needed, but I don't, I just don't understand the rationale um, or the, the push, if you will, to convince patients that this is the best option when you basically, you haven't tried and failed all conservative measures. And, and I consider conservative measures Yes, physical therapy. Yes, uh, massage and chiropractic and whatnot. But I also think to say, oh, I tried two meds and that was it. Didn't work. I, I think <laughs> then go to a stimulator. Let's talk about the reimbursement rate. So I'm an anesthesiologist. Am I going to make more money writing a script for hydrocodone, or am I going to make more money putting in a spinal cord stimulator? Right. Well, you're probably going to make about a thousand times more with the surgery. <laughs> That's right. Um, I've seen explanation of benefits years ago that over $30,000 for a stimulator. I don't know what it is now. I'm not in the hospital setting anymore. For example, med management, which is predominantly what I do. Um, I do other things, but I would say the majority of what I do is that and the reimbursement is terrible. Again, that's why I say to patients um, just to have some patience with us because for me to you know, my time is, is um, not valued by insurance companies or my, my knowledge. And basically the reimbursement is horrible in most cases. And I can understand why people don't want to get into the business. It's, yeah. it's not really, you know, you have to do it because you want to not because you're going to make money because you're never going to be rich doing what I do. Right, right. And, and you take Medicaid, and I'm not going to give your name of the clinic or your last name, because I don't want I, because you'll be bombarded. Uh, so, and I know the reimbursement rate for Medicaid is peanuts and, and hopefully we can help change that over the years. Now, what are your thoughts on pain pumps? So interthecal pain management pumps, I think are great. I think that it is expensive, but it really depends on the situation. I think 
initially, just like stimulatives, they were put in the wrong patients. They were put in, if you're going to have a pain pump in your body, you really should be on low dose opioids and weaned off of orals or greatly reduced if the pump goes in. I think a trial is essential. I know years ago, there were doctors that did not, or surgeons that did not do trials. Intrathecal pain pumps can be very effective. It does require a very unique skill. And I I have a lot of experience with it in the state that I practice in. Unfortunately, there's not many surgeons who implant them. And uh, in other words, it's more about the maintenance. So once you implant them, you have to have someone willing to continuously refill the pump with medication. You also have to have you know safety checks in place for that and, and a lot of patient education. I mean, if you could think about it like an insulin pump, patients with diabetes so severe and they, they get this implanted, it's not without risk. You have to have somebody monitoring it. Maybe you have to go to the clinic every month and have somebody refill it with the insulin for you, or perhaps you need it to be calibrated. It is a lifelong commitment. So Kelly, as Claudia said before, we had done a few episodes on what red flags are and what are some things that patients can do to help themselves on an initial appointment. I would love to know from you, from a provider's point of view, what are some of the biggest mistakes that you've seen pain patients make, even those who aren't struggling with addiction or really are doing everything the way they're supposed to, but when they present on their initial appointment, what are some mistakes they make that we can tell patients to stay away from? Oh, well, I don't know that it would be considered a mistake. If they're not being honest, that's a mistake. Um, but I don't always know that. Being dishonest, not recognizing that you're going to be building a relationship, likely a long-term relationship if you've come to me for medication management. I think that pretty much just not being honest. And I think that, you know, when a patient presents, if they have for example, schizophrenia, and they begin talking and they're hallucinating during the interview. I mean, believe it or not, I've had that. Um, That's a red flag. Um, Does it mean that they can't get on medication safely? No, but it means that patient's going to be a lot of work. So perhaps one of the things would be is to understand that the person seeing you has likely seen many other patients like you, despite your pain is unique. There are very similar um, situations. And I think, again, the red flag would be is if you're, if you're not honest, and you're constantly, probably constantly not listening to the provider, because that initial visit, we're trying to grab all this information we can. In in my, in my world, like a 20 minute period, just be truthful. Sometimes we have kind of told patients to not in certain situations, not to be honest about specifically about having like a sexual abuse or rape history, because we've had so many people denied opioids for that. But other than that, that's really the only thing we've ever um, told patients. So it's interesting because, you know, patients are terrified in these appointments because they come from providers where they're just scrutinized and even, you know, verbally abused almost and abandoned. And so they're so afraid of what to say, what not to say, how to say it, that any tips you give, they're just really helpful. Well, and the other thing I would say to a patient who is that fearful is, uh, you know, and I understand if there's slim pickings for providers out there, is that do you really want this? Do you want to put your all your trust or that you have to edit what you say? That's that's like, do you really want to go to this person? And I know that some patients would say, I have no choice. But at the same token, 
think about it. If you are going to go down the path of building a relationship is, is, as far as my management, you, you have to trust the provider too. You have to, it, it's a, it's a two way street. That's good advice for sure. Kelly, can I, let's talk about opioid rotation. Oftentimes people's opioids, they're not working well and as well. And I, I think we're still, the country struggles between addiction or tolerance versus dependence. Do you use, do you introduce opioid rotation in your practice? Yes, yes. We, um, I encourage um, patients to um, consider this and that, you know, typically the biggest barrier is they don't like change and they think they just want to go up on the dose. Um, and, and that's really not likely to be successful or we'll have the same exact conversation in six months. Um, so yes, I use opioid rotation all the time. It's a lot of work. We have to do prior auths. My staff does. I have to then educate the patient. I have to have them come back in. I have to, you know, perhaps they call in the clinic. They have a side effect to question. The pharmacy calls. <laughs> so it is not a simple, just a cut and dry visit, unfortunately, but it is part of pain management. And all I can say is patients can be very pleasantly surprised that when you rotate the opioid that your body's been on for four years, for example, and you give it a new opioid, you might get better pain relief and you might have less side effects. Is there any way for me to predict it? No, but I know that just going up, up, up on the same drug usually doesn't work. Talking about opioid rotation, I'm very curious about this opioid-induced hyperalgesia that is used so many patients, at least in my state of North Carolina, even when they're stable, when a doctor wants to dismiss them, they'll say, you have opioid-induced hyperalgesia, I don't want to prescribe to you, and go. How many cases have you actually seen where you really do think it truly was someone who the opioids made their pain worse and stopping the opioids would fix their pain? I would say in my current clinic, very few, um, but previous roles, I would say, you know, maybe a dozen um, or so. It's a very fine line because if they have centralized pain syndromes or they have severe fibromyalgia, it's really hard to determine if a patient's getting, you know, 180 of oxycodone and they're still having pain where they can't work and they can't function, they can't do this, and their pain keeps getting worse and worse, you have to say to yourself, well, their receptors are totally saturated. It is possible. But one of the important roles as a pain specialist is to never let your patient get that. You can't always control it, but you can try. And just educating patients as to why the dose is going up slowly or why we're not just going to keep on tacking on the same. Unfortunately, patients often will think, oh, I have more pain. Let me go to this ortho and let me check this out. And let me do this. This. Sometimes you just need to, like you said, rotate the opioid or you need to come down, which no one ever wants to hear about a drug holiday, but you need to come down and switch it up. And you rely on maybe three other non-opioids and just a low dose opioid temporarily to get your body so that you can readjust. You sound like you're extremely, like that you work with these patients. I know at least in my state and even nationally, they push this whole concept that as a patient, if a provider said to me, look, I think the opioids are making your pain worse. So let's just try to taper, like you said, go on a holiday. And if it's absolutely the worst thing in the world and your pain gets worse, we can go back up. Like that would seem more appropriate to me, but at least around here, the doctor will just say, we think your pain's worse from it. We're tapering. And then if the patient is 
getting worse and worse and worse, even after having this drug holiday, they, they never go back up. They'll never give them a medicine back again. And so then they're stuck. And at least in my state, a lot of them do end up going to the street because they have no other option. Yeah. Well, I think, again, I think if it's done correctly, I don't know when in your state what the tapering is. I think anything more than 10%, if not maybe 5% weekly, it is very difficult. So if you think about dosing wise, you know, you just, it's hard. You got to change scripts. You got to do prior roths. Here we go again. You're back to a lot of uh, labor intensive care, but basically somebody's taken a 7.5 milligram tab, you know, maybe you got to give them seven days of that and then 14 days of the five and then switch the directions and, and really slowly taper. But if it doesn't work, and when I say doesn't work, I know insurance companies will say, oh, a two week trial. I prefer a little bit longer and I really like to see examples. Like I mopped my floor. I could always mop my floor. I can't mop my floor anymore. Like that's I want to hear an advice. example. Kelly, that's yes. great advice. Yes. I, I think that's what patients really need to yep. uh, start to, you know, tell this is what I can do since I've been on this medication. So Kelly, we have enjoyed this time that you've spent with us and I know the listeners would love to hear from you again. So hopefully you'll join us again. Who knows? Maybe Kelly can be a regular guest. I know she's got a busy, busy life, but this was chuck filled with information. And and we're so grateful that you took time out of your day to be with the doctor patient forum. Thank you so much. We're so grateful anytime a guest is willing to take their time to speak with us and share their knowledge and experience with us so we can share it with you. Today was really special because as you know, we have given you some tips before on what we think you should or shouldn't do for your initial appointment with a provider and what are some things that we see have been called red flags just so you can be aware of some things to stay away from. But this was really helpful to hear it from a provider's point of view. It's very important that we know what's going through a provider's mind. I know it's easy as a pain patient to say no one ever sells their medication, no one ever quote unquote abuses the system, but that wouldn't be true. So it's important that we acknowledge that however rare it may be, that it's something that actually does happen from time to time. We learned so much from Kelly in this episode and we hope that you did too. We look forward to having Kelly on again. If you have any comments that you would like to leave us about this episode, as always, please reach out to us at bev at the doctorpatientforum.com or claudia at the doctorpatientforum.com. We look forward to bringing you the next episode of the Doctor Patient Forum podcast. Just a quick disclaimer that what you hear in our podcast is not to be considered medical or legal advice. We are not healthcare professionals. We are chronic pain and illness patients who became advocates after having bad experiences in the healthcare system. We will always provide links in the show notes to give evidence for what we are saying.